Well, turn with me this morning once again to the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 6. Today marks the end, not of the book, but of part one of the book. Zechariah is divided into two parts. The first half being this series of visions, eight visions that kind of combine to speak one vision. And these visions were given, remember, to Zechariah over 2,500 years ago. And a lot has been communicated through these images over the past several weeks. We've tried to unpack it. Some of it has been quite bizarre. But at the heart, I think, of what has been displayed through what the Lord has given His people is this. Hope to His people experiencing dark times. Among other things, he's reminded them of the fact that he's working behind the scenes, right? The horseman hidden in the glen. He's reminded them that he supplies all that they need. That he's using the small things. So don't despise the day of small things. But he's using those small things for his glory and for his grand purposes. He's reminded us that he will make his people presentable before him as He takes off their garments of filth and gives them garments of purity. It's been a long night, literally, for Zechariah as he has absorbed all of this. The poor guy absorbed all of these visions to communicate to God's people. It's been a long night for Israel, figuratively speaking, as they seek to rebuild and to restore what had been lost as a result of the exile. But now, here in this final vision, this conclusion of sorts to part one of the book of Zechariah, what I want us to see and anticipate is that the dawn of this long night is breaking. The dawn is breaking. And that's communicated both in this imagery as well as in the message that is behind the imagery that we see this morning. Before I read the passage, I want to just state that it easily divides into two. That's the way we're going to do it today for you guys who like like me to be organized and to think through things uh, organizationally. The first part is the vision. And then picking up in verse 9 is the oracle that follows that vision. And those will be the two parts, the two points that we will look at for the next few minutes together. So let's listen. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. 1 through 15. Listen as I read. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves to the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. 
And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I'm on my way. I'll be right there. Have you ever heard those words? Have you ever said those words to somebody else in a time of urgency, in a time of need, in a time of crisis? I've been both on the receiving end of those words and have had the privilege of saying them to others, hopefully to give them comfort and hope. You see, when you receive those words, I'm on my way, I'll be right there, they buy you some time, right? They buy you some time to press on, knowing that the support that you need is not that far off. Well, when the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, the Lord of heaven and earth says something like that, it can steal your heart like nothing else. This vision and the oracle that follows are a journey into the not yet of the Christian experience. You and I live, we've talked about this before, theologians like to say, between the already and the not yet of the kingdom. The tension between what is ours here and now and what is still to come. That fullness that we long for. This is a word this morning that helps us dwell less on the difficulties of our lives and more on what is ahead and the victory that is sure and that is certain and that has been won for us. And in a world of pain and, and struggle and war and wickedness, in a world where we as Christians, we who love the Lord are feeling more and more marginalized, even persecuted in some places. Yes, one can be weary. I, for one, am weary. But this morning there are two promises for weary hearts. Weary hearts back then, in the 6th century B.C., and now, two words, two realities that we desperately need. Rest 
and peace. Two truths. The first one is this. The divine warrior will bring rest. The divine warrior will bring rest. You see, this last vision of this eightfold vision is a picture of power that's being painted. It's a show of force that's being displayed. And it begins with, with chariots. With chariots. There are four of them, and there's that number four again. We've seen four horsemen. We've seen four horns. We've seen four craftsmen, four winds of heaven. And remember why we see all these fours? Because four is this number of, of completeness. And as with these chariots, we've come full circle to how this vision began, how these scenes began way back in chapter 1 with these different colored horses concealed in this myrtle glen. However, observation is no longer the mission. That's what it was back in chapter 1. Just observe and bring back a report. But now, these horsemen and their horses are Anxious. They are eager to get on the move. It's no mistake that chariots are added to the picture. And these aren't just horses because chariots were the ancient Near East equivalent of a tank. Right? Chariots gave a significant advantage in warfare during that time with their armor, with their speed, and their ability to wield weapons. So in case we didn't get the picture alone that these horsemen now have chariots behind them, they are waging war. It says explicitly in the text, all of them are strong. This is a picture of strength. And power, the divine warrior is on the move. And those things alone would make it a sufficient flex. But we hear about in this vision two mountains, mountains made of bronze. Now what's this all about? What's the Lord communicating in this vivid picture to His people? Well, King Solomon, who built the temple that was destroyed, that the people are desperately trying to restore and revive. When he built that temple, King Solomon commissioned the craftsman Hiram to craft two bronze pillars leading into the temple. And you can read all about it. We don't have time to do it this morning, but you can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 13. But Solomon was so proud of these things, he actually named them. He named them Jachin, which means he establishes, and Boaz, which means in him is strength. And so in Solomon's temple, there were these two giant pillars made of bronze. He establishes, in him is strength. And those two pillars conveyed the majesty of the God that the people that were coming to worship the fact that they were bronze only added to the message. Of course, bronze in that day communicated might as a mighty metal, but also light. We read in Ezekiel 1-7 where it says of that vision, they sparkled like burnished 
bronze. And so you put this symbol of strength and the mighty metal of bronze and the glimmering shimmer of bronze together. And you have the proclamation that we confessed earlier in this worship service in Psalm 104. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of His chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes messengers' winds His ministers a flaming fire. Do you see what God is conveying to this ancient Near Eastern people? But even more than that, set in their context, the false Babylonian god Shamash was depicted in representations of this false god as one who appeared between mountains with gates and lions. And after Jerusalem was sacked before the exile, his horses and chariots, those that had been dedicated to this false god, had been for a time welcomed into the temple. Until King Josiah said no more and put an end to that practice. You see, Yahweh's communicating something very specific, trumping all other gods. This is Yahweh coming forth in terrible might from His holy dwelling place, His heavenly temple. But where are these chariots going? What exactly are they doing? Where they're going, the simple answer is stated. They're going to the four winds of heaven. In other words, they're headed everywhere. Like the four directions on a compass. They have unlimited range. But then we're given specifics, aren't we, in this vision? To the north... Go the black horses, followed by the white ones, and the dappled horses, they head south. That means nothing to us in 2022 in Edmonds, Washington. But boy, it meant something to the Jews of the 6th century B.C. You see, a double dose of horses and chariots to the north was appropriate. Because that's where the enemies came from. That's where Babylon came from. But also Assyria and Persia. All their enemies attacked them from the north. Jeremiah 6.22 Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring. And Babylon, remember, came to represent not just Babylon specifically, but Babylon came to represent all those who oppose Yahweh and His people. And so these horses headed to the north with steam are going to take care of Babylon. And then to the south, uh, there's another enemy to the south. An enemy with a long history in the life of God's people. The nation of Egypt. And of course, we know Egypt well because of the slavery and the exodus. Under Solomon's reign, Egypt actually became an ally for a short time until their pharaoh actually was behind the killing of good King Josiah. 
right before the exile. And so we've got chariots to the north. We've got chariots steaming to the south to take care of Egypt. Well, what about the east? And, and what about the west? Well, some have speculated and argued that maybe we lost some verses in translation and communication of the ancient text. And that those verses told us where the horses went to the east and to the west. But I think there's a better explanation. And it's simply this. The reality that the enemies came from the north or the south. Why? Because to the west was the sea. The Mediterranean Sea. And vast navies were not part of that world, at least not yet. And to the east was simply desert wasteland. And so these chariots going forth to bring about judgment, to wage war on behalf of God's people, they don't need to go to the west. They don't need to go to the east. They go to the north. They go to the south. And they've taken care of everyone. And they're headed out on patrol to impose God's sovereign rule, to subdue all of His enemies, and to bring judgment to the nations. As our text implies, it's not a fair fight. It will be easy. It will be full. And the end result will be rest. Verse 8, Then He cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north country have set My Spirit at rest in the north country. Interestingly enough, this Hebrew word that's translated here as rest is the same Hebrew word that's used back in chapter 5, verse 11, where it speaks of the basket that contains wickedness being carried to Babylon and being placed or rested there for a time. Remember we talked about that last week? In contrast to the house of God being built in Jerusalem, there was a house being built in Babylon for wickedness. It's almost as if to say to God's people, to communicate to God's people through the using of that same word, that now the rest of wickedness is over. It even brought to my mind chapter 1 where it talks about the horseman giving the report and it says that the nations are at ease. Yeah, that ease is over now. It's time for God's people to be at ease. It's time for God's Spirit to be at rest. Just like God rested after six days of creating the earth, so God will rest as the divine warrior heads in every direction to subdue, and to deal with His enemies. What a picture. A picture given to convey hope. Hope to carry on. Yahweh's with them. Yahweh's with His people. His plan and His coming, it's mapped out and it's certain. There's no need to fear. There's no need to cower. To the contrary, they can be bold. They can be bold in their peculiarity. 
You see, this is one of those promises of God's Word that's really meant to stir and to steal, S-T-E-E-L, steal our hearts. As we sung earlier, His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. I love the way one commentator speculates on the effect of this vision on Zechariah. He just had a good way of saying it. He says this, In the darkness of that night, Zechariah must have resolved, I will not give in to the world. I will not surrender to its vision in which Babylon is great and Jerusalem is small. I will offer myself and my labors to the kingdom that God is working out in my own time in ways both small and large, but which someday will fill the earth. I will commit myself to that plan of history over which He is the Lord. I will rejoice now even in sorrow and trouble so that on that great day to come I may have my share in the city without walls there to see with my own eyes the glory of God who dwells within. Man, that's a prayer that I need to pray every morning. Just like Zechariah, this certain future is meant to shape our present. The divine warrior will bring rest. Zechariah spoke this to these people long ago. This wasn't a pie-in-the-sky thing for them. Their enemies would be dealt with. Yahweh would deal with them. But as we move on in this passage into the oracle that is in verses 9-15, through we see a greatness that is promised that they simply couldn't even imagine. And that's where it's all heading. It's where it's always been heading. It's what Yahweh has had up His sleeve for ages. All the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman. And it reveals to us again the beauty, the richness of God's Word and its central figure. And the second truth is this. The divine branch has brought peace. Not simply is the divine warrior bringing rest, but the divine branch has brought peace. You see, the message begins now in verse 9, out of the dream and kind of into the real world, so to speak. The Lord tells Zechariah, go find these guys. Go find Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea who have come from Babylon. Go find these guys who have come from the land of the north, from the land of the enemy, find them and receive contributions from them. Silver and gold. And make a crown and put that crown not on Zerubbabel, the governor, who we would think would get the crown, but Joshua, the high priest. And what Zechariah is being asked to do, it's not some official coronation, right? This is a symbolic act that Yahweh is asking him to do, a ceremony 
That the people might remember this and have it in their mind's eye. And it's a symbolic act that's meant to communicate at least three things. The first is this. It communicates the plundering of the nations and the coming of the nations to Yahweh. You see, they are no match for Him. He will either judge them or win them to Himself. Haggai, a prophet who we've already talked about, was a contemporary of Zechariah, says this in Haggai 2, 7 and 8. He says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah speaks of the future glory of Israel in Isaiah 60, verses 4-7. through Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. They shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. You see what's happening? As these people who are fresh from Babylon bring their gold and silver, they're bringing it to Yahweh, the One who belongs out from the land of God's enemies. And as they bring their goods and themselves and their skills, they are actually part of this kingdom being established. That's the first thing that this ceremonial act communicates is the plundering of the nations and the coming of the nations. But there's a second thing, and it's the fusion of the priest and the king. You see, no longer is there a need for two anointed ones. Zerubbabel has faded to the background in the light of the One who is promised. The priest who will be also the king. And who is this One? Well, that's the third thing communicated. He's the branch. The branch is coming. The branch has come. Jeremiah already prophesied about this one who will be a continuation of the Levitical priesthood, who will be a continuation of the Davidic monarchy, the one who would himself build the temple. And isn't it interesting that a passage full of names, like very personal names, we don't get his name. We just get the branch. But of course, we, we know who this is. This is our Jesus. This is the one John spoke of earlier in the passage that Philip read. This is the one whose birth was a small thing, right? but whose coming again won't be missed. Don't despise the small things. He's the one who received gold as a toddler, brought to him from afar. But that gold wasn't made into a crown for him to rule. Eventually, it was a crown of thorns at his death that was placed on his head. You see, His death has brought us peace with God. His 
death and life has brought rest to our souls. And Jesus, of course, is the divine warrior who will bring rest to this planet, to this universe, as His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. So the question for us this morning is, do you believe this? (laughs) The promises of God are good. They are free. But they demand a response. Which is why that's the last thing that Zechariah hears. Verse 15, hear and obey. And that's the challenge to us this morning. If you truly believe that the divine branch has brought peace, that the divine warrior will bring rest, then just maybe, just maybe you and I can press on. Amidst the hardship, amidst the struggles, amidst the loss, amidst the discouragement, amidst the tears, amidst the doubts, amidst the questions, we can press on. Because Jesus has come and is coming again. You see, the gospel, the gospel not only saves us from the waters of judgment, but the gospel also raises our sails so that they can be filled with his spirit and we can move and carry on. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this vision given to your servant long ago. And Father, we pray that its message would fill and stir our hearts this day, that whatever we're facing, whatever discouragement or obstacle, we might know indeed that as a result of the divine branch coming and bringing us peace, We need not fear. In fact, we can long for the divine warrior to come in terrible might and majesty to make all things right. Oh, Father, may that message indeed give us hope, give us strength to carry on to whatever You call us to be about as Your servants in this world. Father, this I pray In the name of Jesus, the Mighty One, Amen.